clean, agile, dynamic. Hmm, would that describe you and your recruitment practices? Even in the difficult times we're living in, you may not realise it, although I suspect you do, good candidates are rare. And I think that those who are good, they have this inner confidence and they have a very strong sense of self. If you don't treat them with respect, then you're in trouble. They won't come and work for you. Part of my job as a career specialist is to use my knowledge of current recruitment practices to help my clients. But what happens along the way is I hear all sorts of stories about behaviour, and of course we're talking about bad behaviour, from hiring organisations that alienates those of my clients who are the best and the brightest. Now, actually, it alienates all of my clients, but the ones you should be worried about are the best and the brightest who decide that you are not for them. If you're after a top candidate, here's some off-the-record feedback. Now, these traps are actually easily avoidable, and you do need to eliminate them so that these stars willingly and eagerly sign on board with you. Welcome to Career Chinwags for the 21st Century. I'm a career practitioner who's worked with thousands of clients over the past 20 years, so I've had quite a bit of time to think about career stuff. Every fortnight, I pick up on an issue that takes my fancy. Sometimes I talk about something that's very practical. For example, I think back in episode 4, I talked about how exactly do you prepare for a video interview, given the fact that so many of us are facing them these days. Sometimes, though, I look at big picture items. One of the things I think is really important is helping people to understand how to assess what sort of job is going to suit them. In today's episode, I'm doing something a bit different. I'm taking the side of my clients. And what I'm suggesting is that you audit yourself against the following horrors. So if you're a manager who ever has or ever wants in the future to recruit a good candidate, Assess your approach against these seven key issues. In each of the issues, I'm going to start with a direct quote that's come from the mouths of my clients. So let's go. Tip one, don't pin your candidates down at the start when it comes to salary. Here's the quote. This Stupid website wouldn't let me finish the application unless I put my current salary in. I wanted to put in zero. As more and more organisations insist that even executives apply via their online recruitment portal, it's time for you to do an external review of how appealing, or more importantly, how alienating your process is. I've had many a conversation with a senior executive who's both furious and frustrated at being expected to nominate a specific salary in a text box before being able to move on through the recruitment process. This is an issue on so many levels. First, usually you haven't provided them with enough information to be able to make an informed decision. So just think about how unjust that is. An executive may be looking to trade up or even down when it comes to salary, and they worry that if they put in their current salary, they may price themselves out of a job before they even start. Second, 
Many executives actually pride themselves on their ability to negotiate what they think is a fair salary for themselves. And they're highly offended at the crudeness of being expected to pluck a single number out of the air without any actual negotiation. Third, executive remuneration usually consists of more than just salary. There might be benefits, there might be bonuses. And a single number that you ask them to put in your website doesn't allow for this consideration. And fourth, many executives are angry at being asked to disclose this information so early on in the recruitment dance. It sours their first impression of your organisation. Effectively, you're asking the employee to help you to negotiate against them. This is quite unreasonable. Tip number two, show respect. Do what you said you were going to do. Here's the quote. They said they'd call and let me know before the weekend, but they didn't. I didn't want to put my life on hold anymore, so I accepted the other job. These days, most service providers like beauticians and hairdressers send you a text reminder about your next appointment, and they can be quite strict about charging cancellation fees. Time is clearly money. And it's no different with your candidate. Good candidates are busy people with lots happening in their lives. At a minimum, if there's a delay, you should quickly contact the candidate to let them know. One delay is probably okay, but the more you keep shifting and changing, the more foolish and incompetent you start to look. And what amazes me is that so many organisations don't seem to mind or be embarrassed by this. Don't expect your candidates to wait until you deign to contact them. Tip three, don't be a sloth. Move the process along with speed. Here's the quote. If there is inefficient running their business as they have been with their dealings with me, I don't actually want to work for them. Do I need to even mention this one? I haven't yet received my first online delivery deposited by a drone, but apparently that day is not far off. Surely in this day and age, any astute manager realises that candidates will judge an organisation which moves slowly, very severely. Just think it through. If someone's applying for your role, it generally means they want to leave their current role. Do you really think yours is the only job they're applying for? My clients often have six to ten advertised opportunities that they're investigating at any one time, and then they may have other leads that they're chasing through job search networking. I've found that government and the not-for-profit sector are particularly bad culprits here. It's more understanding in government roles because almost always you need to have a panel of people to choose the shortlisted candidates, and then those same people need to be available at the same time to interview the candidates, so that can take a while. There's no excuse for the not-for-profit sector. I think it comes about because many executives in the not-for-profit sector actually come from government and they bring those clunky recruitment processes across with them by default without even thinking. It might be time, if that's you, to do some research about best practice and bring yourself up to date. My brother picked up a role a few weeks ago. He was their second choice, but the first choice got tired of waiting and accepted another job. My brother was very lucky. I hope the organisation was lucky as well. 
Tip number four, those dreaded criteria. Here's the quote. I was in the middle of answering my tenth criterion when the system crashed. I just gave up. It was so boring. I had two other jobs I was applying for and I couldn't be bothered starting again. Government departments just can't seem to let go of these criteria. In the old days, there were sometimes 20 to 30 separate items to address, which meant a weekend of work if somebody wanted to apply for a job, and often it was a 10, 15, 20-page document. At least here in South Australia, government departments have realised that no one wants to do that anymore, but they still seem to insist on a two- or a three-page letter in which a candidate addresses criteria, and they still usually give them eight or ten criteria. And to me, it's not possible to do it well. You're just setting people up for failure. Don't get me started on why the not-for-profit sector also seems to follow this process. If the private sector can manage to recruit using a one-page cover letter and a resume as the basis for deciding who to interview, why can't the not-for-profit sector? I can remember helping a young family member who was asked to address 14 criteria in a two-page letter for a not-for-profit role. I phoned the HR manager on her behalf and I respectfully suggested that this was not possible. And I was gobsmacked by her response. Oh, just get her to choose a few of the criteria to answer. What an unfair choice to expect a young graduate to make. Instead, how about learning to assess the content of a resume to see if the candidate has what you want? You can tell I was particularly hot under the collar about that one. Number five, avoid win-lose in the contract negotiation process. Here's the quote. I felt like they slapped me down. They'll only give me three months' pay if they terminate my contract without cause. Once someone starts in your job, their redundancy entitlement reverts to zero. So what that means, if you make them redundant within one or two years, unless they have savings they are going to be in a negative balance, a negative pay balance, until they find their next job. Now, this client was a CFO, a chief financial officer, and so she knew that at her level of seniority, in a place like Adelaide, it can take several months to find another job if she was made redundant unexpectedly. So she asked for a six-month payout if this occurred. I often call this a contingent liability because the organisation only has to pay it out if they're the ones engineering the change, in which case they should be paying it out. Or you could view it as an insurance policy that the employee takes out with you, again, with the same thinking behind it. Any senior executive without some reasonable parachute is clearly going to be uneasy in the job. More to the point, an employment contract is an essential part of protecting the interests of both the employee and the organisation. Why would you not expect executives to want to protect themselves? Why would you not allow them to protect themselves? Tip number six, understand that the candidate will be evaluating you just as much as you are evaluating them. Here's the quote. He was quite rude to a fellow staff member who'd taken his meeting room by mistake. The other guy just didn't know where to look. In this instance, my client Rob had checked out his prospective new boss on LinkedIn and he found someone who knew him. The feedback he got about him was a little bit lukewarm. 
So I think Rob was already a bit wary when he experienced this behaviour before his own interview started. He was invited back for a second interview, but he ended up turning down the job offer. I think there were too many bad signs for him, and as a good candidate, he had too many other prospects. Tip number seven, behave properly in the interview. Obey body language rules. Here's the quote. He seemed to think that vigorously pumping my hand as he met me would make up for the fact that he never looked me in the eye during the interview. Well, it didn't. There was nothing fun about that interview. The HR director who was interviewing my client had stated at the beginning of the interview that he would not be looking at her during the interview as he wanted to take notes. Now, our society has strict body language rules, but he clearly thought that his need overrode basic manners. Perhaps he also had the very old-fashioned notion, but unfortunately very common old-fashioned notion, that he, as the prospective employer, held all the power. You know, those sorts of people, they think, well, I'm the interviewer, I'll decide what happens here. But as Julia Roberts said in Pretty Woman, big mistake. My client had previously identified fun and humour as being essential for her to be happy at work. So need I say, she turned down the role. Let's sum it up. The whole world is a small place these days when it comes to a bad reputation. Do you actually know what reputation your organisation has when it comes to recruitment? How does your organisation or how do you score in relation to the above issues? And have you ever had an outsider audit your methods against best practice? Mind you, I'd settle for them to audit you against reasonable practice. Why not start with an approach which recognises that recruitment is a process where both parties have power? Why not make it fast and efficient? But most of all, why not make it respectful? Just the other day, one of my clients spoke warmly about a wonderful recruiter he was dealing with in relation to an advertised role. It can be done. This is podcast number 14, I think. My downloads are increasing, but as I often say, I still don't have many reviews and I don't have many subscribers. If you like what you've heard, I'd love it if you could share this podcast or leave a review. I'm doing a podcast every fortnight, and next episode I'm going to talk about common interview questions you're likely to face and offer some suggestions about how to answer them. Remember, if you want to review what we've talked about, check out the full show notes at careerconsult.com.au. There you'll find a whole lot of information that will help you, perhaps a video, perhaps an infographic. I'll repeat that, careerconsult.com.au. And if you're interested in more career advice, I do a mail out once a fortnight. It's either a video, a blog or an infographic. If you're interested, you'll find a sign-up form on the website. Let's finish with the hashtag. Hashtag, why not be happy at work? <laughs>